What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Find out every Monday at 8 on Notes from an Artist. Bassist educator, author David C. Gross, and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an Artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. Every Monday at 8 on CygnusRadio.com. And check out previous episodes on our podcast. Notes from an Artist.Buzzsprout.com. Hi, this is David Gross, and along with co-host Tom Semioli, I want to welcome you to another edition of Notes from an Artist. Tonight, we are pleased to be with songwriter-guitarist Greg Antista. His band, The Lonely Streets, are a rock and roll quartet with deep roots in the Southern California rock scene, keeping the punk tradition alive. They just released their new LP, Under the Neon Heat. So let's get started. Hi, Tom. Hi, Greg. Hi. Hey, Hi. Greg, welcome. It's the 21st century. What the hell are we doing here? <laughs> that was Kathy, my yeah. wife, and my technical guru. <laughs> All right, let's, let's interview Kathy about how, how the hell to turn on a Zoom. We've, we've been struggling <laughs> with this. She bailed on us. Well, we got Kathy here. We got the dog here. So it could be a wild mix. All right. <laughs> hey, let's talk a little bit about Under the Neon Heat. Now, Craig, you um, you come from Southern California. When you talk about musical genres, geographic locales, every region has its own sound. Obviously, Liverpool, Manchester, New York City. Um, there's Chicago, there's Nolens. We talked to George uh, Porter a few weeks ago. How would you describe the Southern California punk scene as you knew it? Or no? As I knew it, I mean, it, it started in the late 70s in L.A., but as I got into it, I probably got my first punk records in 78 and started going to gigs in 79. And that's really when the Orange County punk scene right. kind of exploded on its own. And I happened to be lucky enough to go to high High school with the guys from the adolescents and from Agent Orange and from Social Distortion. So at one high school in Fullerton, California, three pretty um, influential bands came out of there. Wow. One of the things that strikes me about the Southern California punk scene is really how diverse it was. When you think of all the bands that came... Let's talk about there was X, there was the Chili Peppers, there was Green Day, Blink-182, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Jello Biafra, L7, Fear, and you, you, your colleagues there, the Adolescents and Social Distortion. It was a pretty wide palette of bands from there, Southern California. And back in the day, like when we first started going to gigs, like 79, 80, up on the, the Strip, all those bands would be on the same bills. It, I don't know if you remember the Suburban Lawns, but they were very, very new wave <laughs> in a B-52s type way. But they were on the same bill with Black Flag. The Blasters were on the same bills with TSOL. And so all those bands played together. And it really didn't splinter off into separate subgenres to later on. What was the, the punk scene like back then? Did you take your cues from the UK or the New York punk scene? Because it seems like every region, well, I guess the capital was you had LA, you had New York, and you had London, really, is where the punk, and, and later on Seattle. But were you influenced by, the, by what was happening in Great Britain? I think the initial scene came out idolizing the Ramones and Iggy Pop. So I okay. guess it was kind of a, a New York thing. Right. But then yeah. w- once we got our hands on all the English imports, there was actually a little import store in Fullerton that yeah. brought in the Pistols and the Damned and the Clash and the Buzzcocks. Then we right. all started taking cues from those bands, too. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's interesting how punk got the reputation, I guess, in the mainstream as being people who weren't talented and weren't good musicians. But, you know, you look at the song package, <laughs> You know, Blondie and Elvis Costello, Graham Parker, Ian Dury. Uh, you mentioned The Clash and Joe Strummer, um, television even. Punk really had deep roots in a lot of different genres. I think a lot of those early punk pioneers 
came up in the in the hard rock era in the heavy rock area of the early mid 70s and i know all the guys i took my cues from steve soto frank agnew they came up on the beatles and they'd be playing you know we'd be going to the adolescence gig at night but if there was an adolescent show we'd be at a backyard party and they'd bust out acoustic guitars and play the beatles so from the from the time I picked up a bass, which was about those years, 79, 80, I was listening to people playing the Beatles and, and Elton John and then going to the punk rock shows in yeah. Orange County in L.A. Well, if I tell you, I, I well, first of all, I think the um, what was it? The uh, rock and roll swindle, the Malcolm McLaren thing. The big swindle was the fact that the Pistols could play. They actually <laughs> could play. As a matter of fact, I think the drum fill just that I've told you this in the past, Tom, in God Save the Queen. That, oh, yeah. that little stop where the drums just go, bum, 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 is one of the most perfectly planned drum fills. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Cook could play. Uh, Matlock could play. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so the scam was very similar as far as I was concerned to what happened when the Beatles first came and all the quote unquote studio guys and folks like that were just frightened to death that, uh oh, something's coming on and we're getting passed by. Uh, you, know, you know what I mean? And, and and of course, the punk thing was, oh, we hate all this bombastic Rush, Queen, etc. Right, wizards and, so, and Dragons yeah. and, and, and Double Up. The reality was, once again, all those folks were going, oh, gee, something new's happening. And it was partially New Wave, partially uh, punk, but it was all independent record companies going, screw this. I'm going to do it myself. It, it was a wonderful time, I think. I, I think that was part of it was, yeah, there's a the musicianship, whether you could play well or not, but it was also like, it was kind of unheard of to start your own band, start your own record label, start your own fanzine. And everybody, for some reason, decided to do it right then. And <laughs> and like you said, many of them were very musical, so it, it just made it that much better. Yeah. But the people behind the labels and the fanzines, you know, they just went for it then, and it started its own thing. Yeah. And with yeah. that in mind, don't you find that with, with fanzines today, because there still are fanzines, the writers, the publishers... They're not as rabid as back in the day. Now, listen, we spoke with Michael <laughs> League a couple of weeks ago, and he was going, you know what? And he's 37 years old, and I said, he's all there. Uh, it's a pain in the ass. I'm going to have to go on TikTok. So the grass, <laughs> so I, I will assuage that the ga- grass is always greener, but our grass was even greener. <laughs> yeah, I, I was pretty damn lucky. I mean, Fullerton is the home of Fender guitars. So we had this deep tradition, even in the 60s, with the Righteous Brothers and that kind of thing going on. There was all kinds of little clubs around Disneyland and Anaheim and stuff where, you know, the Beach there was a place called the Golden Bear where Dick Dale and the Beach Boys would play. So that whole tradition was there. And and in the 70s, it it just turned into the punk rock thing. But everybody I knew that was older than me in the punk rock thing came up with those bands too. There was hard rock bands that were kind of like the contemporaries of Van Halen and stuff that were were in Orange County. You also have the the Latin influence. I mean, think about it. Los Lobos, uh, Dave Navarro, Rudy Sarzo, who we talked to, Robert Tria, you know, Zach LaRocca, you know, so there was also that, which I mean, you were bleeding into the 90s. But it seems like of all of all the places, rock and roll is still very strong in California for some reason. You know, Californians yeah. love rock and roll. And I mean, the, the first one of the first bands to come up with X was pl- the Plugs. And that's the whole right. Latino connection right there that bridged over into Los Lobos. Yeah, I think it's a very California thing. And I've traveled around the world. And when you say you're from Southern California, everybody always kind of already knows 
what you're supposed to sound like, what you're supposed to look like, because it's made that, and that's a good thing. You know, you know what the Ramones are supposed to sound like and look like, because they made that strong of an impression. Yeah, and yeah. I, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's talk about Under the Neon Heat. You've got a new kid on the block. You got Frank Agnew, yes? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Legendary Frank Agnew of the Agnew Brothers. Apparently they're making a, a film of his life story, him and his brothers right now. So he's going to even be more immortal once that comes out. Right. But but yeah, they were they were the founders of the Orange County punk rock scene. You know, right, I was right. I was 15, 16 going to adolescence rehearsals in Frank's garage and we've been friends ever since. But this is the first time we've ever made a record together. Yeah, that's I mean, it's amazing. <laughs> I guess what comes around. What what does he bring to the table for you guys? He says, I mean, I love Frank as a friend and as a yeah. guitar player, but just over the years behind my back when we weren't playing together, he's become so musical. I mean, he <laughs> came in he came in with every kind of organ and keyboard you could think of and mandolins and 12-string acoustic guitars. He does it all. You need that guy. And, you need the utility guy who can do everything. And you need the guy that hears the harmonies and tells everybody, you know, where they're blowing it and where they need to sing. And he picks it on his guitar for everybody. So so it gets the whole group singing. So he's also the choir director. <laughs> choir director. All those many hats for him. And then, uh, I love it. of course, you got Warren, who's, who's uh, with the legendary Manic Hispanic and the Cadillac Tramps. I love his uh, his vocal on the, uh, he, he takes the, uh, he takes Warren Zevon, another. Uh, another <laughs> Warren Isn't it wonderful? Warren. I mean, Warren came up in Final Conflict, which is kind of a hardcore crossover band from Orange County in the punk rock right. scene. Started the Cadillac Tramp, started Manic Hispanic, and he was on our first record. He's in the band. And when it came time to record this record, he kind of quietly pulled me aside. And he's all, you know, no one's ever even asked me to sing backups on a record, much less oh. let me sing a song. And he's all, I want to sing a song. <laughs> and so I said, anything you want. I had no idea what he was going to bring my way. I'm all, you want, you want me to write you a song? I'll write you a song. He goes, he's all, I got one in, in, in my mind. And he brought that in. And first take, everyone's all, God, this is a hit. Warren needs his own band. Yeah, man. Warren nails it. So it's a pity Warren Zevon isn't here to hear it. Yeah. And, and I mean, he said... Warren just comes off as such a, a, a sensitive songbird yeah. in this thing. You would have never seen that coming. Yeah. He's a giant monster bass player, and he comes off just witty and sensitive, and he wrote those lyrics himself. It's amazing. And the P bass looks like a toy in his hands, for God's sake. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, uh, you know, what? Uh, we, first of all, we got to get you to pick uh, some tracks you want us to play from this record. Um, I think, what is it, the... Um, the single is Down on Commonwealth, right? That's the single? Sure, That's the single. sure. Okay, we'll play that one. We'll definitely play Warren. What other track would you like us to play? Um, the next single is going to be Tijuana Jail. That's dropping next Friday. Okay. So I don't know when this is going to air, but anytime after that, let's let's okay. go public with it. So um, if you, yeah, if you want if you want to play Down on Commonwealth, we can talk about that a bit. Yeah, let tell us about that. Uh, tell us about that track. And that and that's an ode to growing up in Fullerton mm -hmm. and um. You know, just my recollection is what we just discussed on the punk rock scene. Mm -hmm. But more recently in 2011, I mean, we'd all been roughed up by the cops. We'd all been mistreated by the cops. It's kind of a, a Orange County's real conservative place. And the cops yeah. have always never been called to account for, for anything they've done. But in 2011, in Fullerton, they beat this homeless guy to death for no reason. Okay. Six of them caught on film. And, um, and Fullerton's a small town. You know, a lot of families have lived there for generations. I don't know where you guys are at, but but it's it's just like the boroughs. We're outside of L.A., but it's its own little enclave. 
Yeah. And so people just wouldn't put up with that. And um, the whole town came out and put a stop to it and, and had a, a bunch of people fired from the police department. So that's part of that, too. And it all kind of gelled together into down on Commonwealth. Yeah. Yeah. And it's always, you know, punk. punk if, if one music speaks truth to power, it's punk rock. And um, people took to the streets, man. It was <laughs> it was a good feeling. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so that song just wouldn't have been complete without a verse about Kelly Thomas. Oh, great. Great. Can't wait to play that one. And let's what well, another topic David and I love to discuss is this thing here it's called the album well this is a cd but it's called the album format now you know i'm sure you took great pains in putting a track list together and you know picking out you know how each song would segue into one another but we live in a streaming age now right we live in a, a in an algorithm playlist age is is the album format still relevant you think in 2020 for me it is and yeah. and you tell me um but i had a lot of people tell me you know yeah you're gonna get more bang for your buck if you just release singles or release right. four song four song digital eps and stuff like that yeah. and we went the other route we've done two records and it feels right. good because they're both little time capsules of that year you're right we we put them in order we made a story out of them and and it feels good yeah. to me at yeah. least and i don't i don't think we'll do anything different i think we'll do a, a third record even if yeah. somebody wants EPs now and then. <laughs> but I guess anybody can chop them into playlists, but, you know, and then that's something you don't have a, uh, a control over because when I put SoCal in my Spotify, I see you listed with a bunch of other SoCal bands and I'm like, oh, those algorithms really know how to dig for song. But it's it's unfortunate, though, because you don't get to pick whatever song they uh, they choose they choose to include in the playlist. So it's I guess it's a double edged sword where you get the exposure, but you don't really have the choice of what people hear. And and this time we chose. Well, last time we should have made vinyl, but this time we made vinyl. And okay. hopefully you guys get your head. Hopefully Randy will send you some of that vinyl. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and what inspired vinyl? Um, like you just said, the album format. And it's the like on, on vinyl, you put it on. And even if that's not your favorite song, are you going to get off the couch and, and, and pick up the needle? No, you're going to listen. To, you're going to listen to that album side. And and for me, it just feels very warm and, and it tells the story. And I got lucky. Um, I tracked the songs before I... I sent it to Vinyl Press, but we're okay. broke for side A and side B, I think is perfect. Wow. Wow. I can't wait to see Vinyl. Wow, David. I, I've heard of Vinyl. <laughs> <laughs> and so hopefully anyone listening to it, Vinyl, will, will, will feel that flow and that vibe. And you tell me, I didn't quite know where Warren's song would fit in, so I just put it as the grand finale. And I hope, oh, Warren, hope Warren views it as that. That it's like uh, Her Majesty or She's So Heavy. <laughs> Warren, Warren got buried on the end of side two. That's no, funny. it's the grand finale, Warren. And what's <laughs> awesome was during the pandemic downtime, Warren just took up the accordion. Oh, and, did he? And pretty much mastered it. So we played this song and it wasn't planned. I'm just all, do you want to come in and play accordion on it? By the time it was done, it just needed something else. And he came in and he did it in a couple takes. Yeah. When was the last time you saw an accordion credit, David? Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I, it must have been Buster Poindexter when... Uh, uh, what's his name? A uh, guy who ended up being musical director for. Oh, him. Charlie Giordano, the Charlie guy. Giordano. Yeah, that's the yeah. last time I've seen an, right. uh, an accordion. He's an well, East Street it's guy. Not, it's not the last you're going to see a war. It's because I fell in <laughs> love with it. 
<laughs> well, I look forward to seeing the Lonely Boys with an accordion solo in the middle, right? Yeah, and and I'm thinking about it live, and I think I might just have to grab the bass, and I'll play the bass, and he can sing and play accordion while the ladies swoon. <laughs> wow, that works. <laughs> and uh, last but not least, Greg, tell us now the uh, lockdown is we're starting to come out of COVID. What's uh, what does the live uh, schedule look like for you guys? Finally, people are starting to, to book shows yeah. again, and so we just did the first festival in Southern California, the first thing that was for, I think there's about 5,000 people there, but they held it in this place that could hold 20,000 people, an outdoor kind of um, city park. And so there was plenty of room to distance, but that was in May. And so mm -hmm. that was really taking a chance when they booked that several months before. But now everybody's booking full capacity All and right. we're going to do our album release um, down in Long Beach on the 23rd of July. And after that, hopefully we'll hit the road on the West Coast. But I think everybody's starting to book again with confidence that they're going to be full capacity. Yeah. When does the album officially drop? July 16th. Oh, okay, David. So then we'll time this. Yeah, so we'll try and coordinate this to be then, you know, and that okay. will be promoted, you know, officially. Yes. Oh, that'll be yeah. great. All yeah. right, man. Well, hey, thanks for talking. Um, we'll send you links when we get everything up. We um, put this on a podcast. That's what the kids listen to, right, David? Oh, yeah. Not my kid. Not your kid. You, we, have more, we have more listeners than Joe Rogan, don't we now? I think. Yeah, yeah. As a matter of fact, Joe's been asking me about um, my technique. So. <laughs> Joe wants you to can... make a cameo on your show. I, I wish. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> I would kidnap him. All right, so then we'll get this on the podcast. We'll get this on the radio, and we'll send you and Randy you know, the sound clips, and we'll take some video stuff, too. And, uh, hey, good luck with the record, and call us when you make another one. Thank you so much, man. And have right. you got a minute before we hang up? Yeah, go yeah. ahead. What have you got? Well, Randy told me you were a renowned, famous studio session guy in New York. I need David. to hear who you played with before. Oh, David, tell him. I mostly did. Um, uh, let's see. I, I, I studied music at University of Miami, and I did my undergraduate work at CBGB's. But I did studio work in the 80s. I played in a lot of different bands and things. And then uh, I decided rather than be a starving bass player, I'd be a starving writer. <laughs> it's a lot easier carrying around a laptop than a Fender rig. Um, but, David, you have the more spectacular history. I guess. I guess. Uh, <laughs> you look familiar, David. Come on. You played with Barry Manilow or somebody, huh? <laughs> uh, Barry Mandible. He no. is Barry uh, Manilow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was in a, um, I played with this group called Humble Pie. I played. Oh, my God. Later. 30 Days in a Hole. 30 That's Days in a Hole, right? Yeah. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> I did lots of studio work. I was with um, a woman named Robin Beck, who really wasn't very popular in America, but her record sold about 3 million copies in Europe. So we did a lot of work there. It was kind of awesome. a hair band. I had like Sammy yeah. Hagar hair at that time. But Europe, Europe for hair bands had to be wonderful back then. Oh, man, there's nothing quite like it. Nothing. <laughs> yeah. You know, you Open know, it up for the Scorpion. <laughs> yeah, you know as well as I do that American bands in Europe just do well. You know, yeah. the people are great. Uh, the food is fantastic. And then for a couple hours, you, you bounce around at stage a little bit, you know. <laughs> so it, 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 it was a good thing. And then a few other folks you've probably heard of and some I'd like to forget. But, uh, <laughs> you know, that was then. This is now. I... I this, um, I have got about 14 books out on how to play the bass and, and things like that. So, one you know, price at a time. time. <laughs> yeah. 
And since being based at that, you know, so. Yes, David is a proponent of the extended range. we got to get Warren a uh, six-string fretless bass. Yeah, we do. Teach him how to tune it, maybe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, so the, right. the, show, the show's doing good. You're in good company. Uh, well, gosh, who are some of our uh, interviewees? Ron Carter, Larry Grenadier, Richard Thompson. Randy sent me the link for, um, was it Paul Gray? Is that who oh, you talked to? Paul Gray, that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He's such a, a fine English gentleman. I'm all jealous of his Rickenbackers. Yeah, aren't you? Isn't it terrible? Well, we just interviewed um, two guys you should know. One is Carmen Rojas, right, the great bass player. And then uh, the arranger, John Alban, and they were just surrounded by platinum records. Look at me. You know? I'm surrounded by punk rock posters. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, there you go. All right. All right, Greg. Be well. Thanks Thank for talking. Thank you so much. Man. Nice Bye-bye. to meet Bye you. Now. Take care. Well, that's our show for tonight. I want to thank my co-host, Tom Semioli, and of course, Greg Antista for a fun and informative interview. And don't forget to pick up his new record, Under the Neon Heat. Also, I want to let you know that we are archiving all of our shows via our podcast, also titled Notes from an Artist. You can find this on all major podcast players or at notesfromanartist.buzzsprout.com. Have a great week, and thanks for listening. 